There are some kinds of questions that follow us through the ages. Like, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? I assume some of you at least remember that commercial, or the one like it, that says there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's, but I'm pretty sure there might be. There's other questions like, if you've ever been fishing, you end up running into someone else who ties their fisherman's knot just a little different than you, or will tell you the right bait to use, or the right place to fish, or the right way to troll, or countless other questions where it feels like there might not be a right answer, but they'll tell you there is one. Or even like writing a sermon. How long should it be? Should it be funny or not funny? Exegetical or topical? There's countless things that we could point to. How many analogies are there? Should there be stories? Man, even writing a sermon is a question that sometimes doesn't feel like there's a right answer. Or even a question as obvious as, are the Giants a good football team? Depends on who you ask what kind of answer you're going to get there. And some questions just don't have specific answers and yet are nonetheless important. And sometimes we claim that questions don't have specific answers just because we don't like the answers that we come to. Like, how many hours of sleep should you get a night? Or how much junk food should you eat? Or what even consists junk food? Or how much TV should you or your kids be watching? Or how often should you floss your teeth, if at all? Well, when it comes to practicing the Sabbath, there's a lot of questions that arise, but what kind of questions are they? Is there a right way? Are we called to follow the command given to the people of Israel in the Ten Commandments to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy? And if so, what exactly is that supposed to look like? Is that a question with a definitive answer, or is it a question that we each answer for ourselves? Well, the truth is, even just Sundays look different for each of us. Whether it's a Saturday Sabbath or a Sunday where we're trying to go to church, there are lots of things that get in the way, and it's often a battle. Whether it's getting your kids to church or getting food on the table or traveling to sporting events or just trying to watch all the sporting events, it doesn't feel like Sunday's the Lord's Day, not to mention getting a Sabbath rest in. Now, is that a minor shortcoming or is that a moral failure? Does God frown upon our sinful Sabbath practices or lack thereof? Or are we just missing out on an opportunity for a better, less stressful life? See, we're in a series right now called Sabbath, where we are exploring the delight of what God calls us to, even as we work a muscle that's atrophied since the initial seventh day began. Over the past few weeks, Pastor Chris and Pastor Jason have walked us through this idea of Sabbath and how it's been commanded and modeled and talked about from the very beginning pages of the Bible in Genesis all the way through the life and words of Jesus himself. Today we're going to explore what the Apostle Paul says to us in his letters about Sabbath in the hope that we might find our way to the delight and the rest that God intends. So, What are the pitfalls, and how does Paul model a way out of the pit into the pasture? Well, one of the more interesting elements of the New Testament, especially regarding Sabbath, has to do with the limited mentions of the word Sabbath. After the Gospels, the first time we see this idea of the Sabbath day coming out is in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and his companions companions attend the synagogue and preach the gospel message. Look with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. 
Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. What we see here in Acts 13 is a pattern that's repeated by Paul during his Sabbath practice. In the book of Acts, we see him consistently going on the Sabbath to seek out a group of people who are gathered at the synagogue and entering into conversations about Jesus and the gospel. And one way to think about this, if we were going to practice, if we were going to model our Sabbath after Paul's, we would be gathering with other believers and seeking out a context where the gospel is preached. And honestly, that's not a bad way to start. When it comes to Sabbath practices, gathering and gospel are Sabbath patterns. Gathering and gospel are Sabbath patterns, and that's your first note if you want to write that down. See, as Pastor Chris shared a few weeks ago, Sabbath, especially as defined in the Old Testament, it only works if it's something we do together as a community. If the whole community isn't doing it, it kind of falls apart because in able to stop the way that we are commanded to in the Old Testament, you need everyone to be in it together. The gathering or together nature of practicing the Sabbath, it's an essential that's not lost on the Apostle Paul either. In some ways, getting at Paul's practice here, though, can kind of put the cart before the horse. What does Paul teach us that can be affirmed by the way that he practices Sabbath? What does he say that we can learn more about by what he does? Well, that is where this gets a little bit tricky because while we see these instances and acts of the Sabbath day and what Paul does, the word for Sabbath, at least meaning the Sabbath day, that that sixth day of the week, only pops up one more time in Paul's writings. Well, let's take a look here in Colossians chapter 2. Sorry, that's seventh day of the week this Saturday. Um, all right, Colossians chapter two, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now at face value, the only teaching here that we have on Sabbath here in, uh, in Corinthian, excuse me, in Colossians chapter two It seems to read, don't judge anyone for their practices on the Sabbath. Does that mean that none of it matters? Is the silence in the New Testament letters due to the coming of Jesus? Does his death and resurrection fulfill the law and make the command in the Ten Commandments obsolete? Are these kinds of questions things you wrestle with? Because it's really what comes to mind for me when I read Colossians chapter 2. What are we supposed to do with the apparent silence in these letters regarding the Sabbath? And the truth is, a lot of us live like there's nothing in the New Testament around Sabbath. We attend church on Sundays. We do our best to be present, and that marks our our engagement on the day that we've set aside for the Lord. We gather, and we hope that the pastor preaches the gospel, but we don't intentionally wrestle with the fact that Well, Sabbath was Saturday, and the Lord's Day is Sunday, and we also don't wrestle with the fact that we have an invitation to Sabbath or a command to keep it holy. We do our best to get to church and serve and worship, and then we go home and try to prepare for Monday and another week of craziness. 
are we really embodying what Paul invites us into? Are we fulfilling the desire of God with how we practice the Lord's Day on Sunday or the Sabbath, traditionally Saturday? Let's not rush too fast into those questions because we could rush right past what Colossians is actually saying. Colossians tells us this, do not pass judgment on your neighbor's Sabbath. It says, don't let anyone judge you for your Sabbath practice. See, the Sabbath was a day where God's people were to gather and celebrate his holiness and their identity as his people. In the Old Testament, Sabbath was met with extreme consequences. Yet Paul clearly says here that his readers shouldn't worry about how others judge their Sabbath practice or their festival practice or their eating habits. And maybe if it was just Colossians that said this, we could do some sneaky theology and get around it or say, hey, there's not enough in the New Testament for us to really build practice around this. And we could just kind of, you believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe. But the truth is in the New Testament letters and in the book of Acts, we do have other instances that talk about similar themes, even from the apostle Paul himself. And Paul remains consistent on this. Look with me in Romans chapter 14. It says this, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Sabbath isn't mentioned here in Romans, but... The Lord's day of Sunday or the Sabbath day, the idea remains that Paul says the goal is to honor the Lord. And it's up to the conscience of the individual, not what his neighbor thinks, at least when it comes to what Paul is talking about here, observing the day. If we jump into the book of Galatians, we see even stronger language. Look with me at Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, where it says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Galatians goes even further when it comes to observation of days and months and seasons and years that mark the, the Galatians' faith instead of going forward, going backwards. Galatians was all about Paul warning this church to say, hey, practices that were a part of Judaism, like circumcision, they don't have to be a part of your faith now. They are not the thing that marks you as saved. In fact, they aren't what saves you. Jesus and faith in him is what saves you. While Paul doesn't mention the Sabbath specifically here, he identifies a pattern and warns the Galatians that their faith is about Christ and his sacrifice, not about additional practices or commands from the Old Testament. And this is further built on in Acts chapter 15, where we see the church gathered to say, what do we do with these Gentile believers? Read with me Acts 15, 10 through 20, where it says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
And so here, even outside of Paul's writings, we find the church in Jerusalem choosing to include Gentile believers, but leaving no command for them on the Sabbath. We don't get the why for these specific instructions. It's clear from the rest of the New Testament, we don't just throw out all of the Old Testament. Jesus himself said he came not to abolish the law. There is value in what the nation of Israel was told to do. And yet, when it comes to the specific commands given here in the book of Acts, Sabbath is not mentioned. We don't get the why, but each of the passages we've read leads me to believe these two things. First of all, we should be convinced in our heart before our own conscience of how we honor the Sabbath. In our own minds, we should be able to say, I'm doing my best to to practice and honor Sabbath as I feel I am called to do. And secondly, we're not to judge the practices of someone else when it comes to Sabbath. Now, I don't think that means we can't say, hey, you don't have any Sabbath practices in your life. You are never taking time for the Lord. That's a different conversation. But it's kind of along that line. We have to be careful when we're calling out the practices of someone else when it comes to Sabbath or how they're choosing to take a day or a time for the Lord. That's in the words of Colossians and seems to be here in Galatians and in Romans and in Acts as well. Okay, so we got it. Don't judge someone else's Sabbath. Don't judge their practices for Sunday. Don't judge their Saturday. I could get on board with that. But what are we supposed to do? How does that actually help us to define what we're supposed to do when it comes to finding that Sabbath rest or seeing what Sabbath is there for or honoring the command to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy? What am I supposed to do? Well, let's go back to Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I spent a lot of time in the Ten Commandments preparing for this message. I wanted to understand why they're there and what I'm supposed to do with them as a believer after the resurrection of Jesus. I'm a firm believer that God doesn't just command things flippantly, but behind his commands is a deeper good. It's something that he's leading us into. And throughout this series, we've been pointing to the good of Sabbath, the good of rest, the good of being able to sit and be in God's reign. If Paul is implying that Sabbath practice isn't defined by the number of steps that we take or by the foods that we eat or by a specific way that we worship, what is it that Sabbath is supposed to be doing? Why is it important? What is the good that is behind it? And especially, what is the why that isn't abolished by Jesus, but is fulfilled and brought to an even fuller command? See, Jesus said often in regards to commands in the Old Testament, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And instead of abolishing them, he fulfilled them and made them even more focused. How does he do that with Sabbath? What does that look like for us? Well, the Bible Project guys, if you've never checked them out, they're really insightful and really helpful when it comes to Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, and I encourage you to check out their videos on the topic. But one of the things that they highlight when it comes to the Sabbath is that it was a command for a weekly rhythm, but the feasts and the festivals that are also commanded for the people of Israel, they were actually this idea of of Sabbath played out into something bigger. They bring the idea of Sabbath and work it out in greater detail or depth. 
They argued that the feasts and festivals and even the weekly Sabbath pointed to something. And when Jesus says that he fulfilled the law, he fulfilled that something. And as we engage with Paul on the Sabbath, we have to acknowledge that Sabbath points us somewhere. That Sabbath, it points us somewhere. Just as the commands not to covet or not to steal can point us toward the fact that God provides and we have all that we need in him, the Sabbath can point us to something. We are told to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, and that can point us back to the goodness of God and his provision that we can rest in. You know, throughout this series, we've been reminded that Sabbath was a unique practice that doesn't make sense on the surface, especially when it was first given. The cost to practice Sabbath in an agricultural community like ancient Israel, man, that was enormous. They don't have time to take a whole day off from everything just to be present with the Lord. And yet the action was an act of resistance and rebellion against the way of the world, against the rest of the world. It was an act that boldly proclaims the provision of God and marks that he is present with his people and won't let them go without as they worship him. When we practice Sabbath, we are pointed back in the same direction. We are pointed back to God's provision and providence and presence. Sabbath emerged in the wilderness with the manna from heaven. That's the first time we really see it after God says he rested on the seventh day. They were told, do not gather on the Sabbath day. You can gather extra the day before, but on the seventh day, don't gather. And what we see is that in this time of provision, they are told to rest. On the wake of manna from heaven, the people are told to rest on the Sabbath. And what we find is that when God provided Jesus in the wake of that provision, once again, the people are told to rest. But this time there's a silence when it comes to the Sabbath. A moment where God provided true manna from heaven, the body and blood of Christ, it's then that we see these commands around Sabbath suddenly become absent. And maybe that has to do with the substance of the Sabbath. The substance of Sabbath is what Christ has done and what he will do. Last week, Pastor Jason reminded us that Jesus spent Sabbath in the tomb. He rested in the tomb on the Sabbath day that we might find rest in him in the eternal Sabbath that he invites us into. One, re one reason I believe is possible that Sabbath practice is less defined in the New Testament is because we are invited to a Sabbath rest that's not confined to a temporal day, but points to an eternal day that never ends. One of the church fathers addresses the topic of Sabbath and some of the questions that we're talking about this morning like this. If it be objected to us on this subject that we ourselves are accustomed to observe certain days, as for example, the Lord's Day, the preparation, the Passover, or Pentecost, I have to answer that to the perfect Christian who is ever in his thoughts and words and deeds, he is serving his natural Lord, God the Word. All his days are the Lord's, and he is always keeping the Lord's day. Sabbath served and still serves as a reminder. It's an intentional reset. It's an opportunity to restore our attention toward the things of heaven. 
It's an opportunity also to relight our priorities, to rewrite them toward the things of God and reawaken our hearts to the invitation to do life, not just for him, but with him. What if the Sabbath day isn't mentioned in detail in the rest of the New Testament outside of the Gospels because it was always pointing to something greater? What if the way that we rest on a specific day of the week is swallowed up in the one who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? What if Sabbath was always supposed to point to Jesus? How would that change how you practice Sabbath? We serve a risen Savior who's not confined to a temple building once a week. Instead, we serve a God who is with us, who comforts us in our troubles, not from the expanse of heaven, but from the closeness of our spirit, who lives with us and who lived with us. We serve a crucified and risen Lord who has released us from the bondage of the law and who promises to return to usher in a Sabbath rest that will never end. In light of the one that we serve, the one who fulfills the law, including the command to Sabbath, the one who invites us to rest, how are you going to accept this invitation? See, Paul practiced Sabbath. We don't know all the whys because they're not listed in the New Testament. The prescription for what Sabbath looks like, it's not there. And yet the invitation to it remains. Let me leave you with some invitations and some questions for you to ponder. What if Sabbath isn't about optimizing your faith? What if it's about being with God? What if Sabbath isn't merely a command to follow? What if it's an invitation to attend? What if Sabbath isn't an end goal, but it's a gateway to explore? Perhaps as you explore your own invitation to Sabbath, there are some practices you could employ. Here are three that I might suggest. First, practice Sabbath by intentionally turning to God, not by doing church practices that everyone else is doing. What is it that God is calling you to do that would bring you that Sabbath witness with him? Practice Sabbath, secondly, by building up the faith of others, not by promoting your own way. Jesus himself said, Sabbath is a time to do good. And so how do you build up faith in others not try to get, this is what I think Sabbath should look like. Not that message for everyone else. And thirdly, practice Sabbath by giving thanks for God's provision, not by trying harder to achieve. Man, I know it's hard for us not to achieve, not to try to do something, even in our Sabbath, even in our rest. We ask, what practices can I push into harder? Can I do more? What if Sabbath is just an opportunity to rest and be thankful? It's kind of like when you tell someone, saying sorry, the words only go so far. Show me you're sorry by what you do. One practice you can do to really give thanks for God's provision and experience Sabbath is to show that you trust it by truly resting and not trying to achieve anything at all other than being with God. What might it look like to delight in the Sabbath? Not simply as a command, that must be obeyed, but as, a, as an invitation to rest in the good gifts of the good.
gift giver. Don't seek the Sabbath. Seek the Sabbath fulfiller. Seek Jesus. In his book, Sabbath as Resistance, Walter Brueggemann says, but Sabbath is not only resistance, it is alternative. It is an alternative to the demanding, chattering, pervasive presence of advertising and its great liturgical claim of professional sports that devour all of our rest time. The alternative on offer is an awareness and practice of the claim that we are situated on the receiving end of the gifts of God. So I invite you to choose the alternative to which God calls you. Don't get caught up in what the specific answer is. You can get caught up in the question, what should Sabbath rest look like? But maybe the question you should be asking is, have I accepted the invitation at all to Sabbath? Don't default to the world's Sabbath or to your neighbor's Sabbath, but seek the God of Sabbath and his rest that you may find the one who brings it, the Lord Jesus. So our encouragement is don't dismiss Sabbath, but accept the invitation and see what life and rest God provides. Pray with me. Lord, we confess that You offer us good gifts, and we rush past them. God, we confess that we are slow to practice moments where we are with you, even as we do things for you. God, I ask that you would teach us to find Sabbath rest. You would show us rhythms in our own lives that we can do, not so that we can optimize or achieve, but so that we can rest in your reign and your goodness. Lord, teach us what it means to find the Sabbath, to practice the Sabbath, and may we meet you in that. In Christ's name, amen.